0: We've been uh, teaching for the last several weeks on being led by the Spirit of God. And uh, we've been using uh, uh, three openings as text scriptures or really beginning points. First Thessalonians chapter 5, um, Romans chapter 8, and Proverbs chapter 20. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, Paul said, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly or completely. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul And body be preserved blameless into the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us by the Holy Ghost, by the Holy Spirit, the makeup of man. Man is the spirit. He has a soul and he lives in a body. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Well, everybody wants to be led by the Holy Ghost. It would be impossible for you to walk in defeat in any area if you're led by the Holy Ghost. Because he's always going to lead you into victory that's all he knows but how's he going to do that well if man is spirit, soul and body and the Bible doesn't tell us how the Holy Ghost is going to lead us then we're left to wonder or to conclude and draw our own conclusions based on any number of factors on what the leading of God is and folks I don't know what your experience is but I get a lot of people telling me that God told them things that God could not possibly have said I get a lot of people that tell me that their decisions are what God is leading them to do when it, would, when it contradicts the word, when it violates the word. Well, that's impossible for the Holy Ghost to lead you contrary to the word of God. Well, where do people come up with these ideas? There are all kinds of reasons and, and, uh, and excuses, I guess, that people can make for why they think God is telling them one thing or another to do. But I, the bottom line comes down to it's what their flesh wants. Nobody, now you judge this for yourself. I believe this is a true statement. I've never said this before. Wasn't really planning to say it now, so I kind of caught myself. I believe it's by the Spirit of God, but you judge it for yourself. Nobody ever claims to be led by the Holy Ghost to do something that's contrary. Well, let me say it this way. Nobody ever falsely claims to be operating by the leading of the Holy Ghost that's against their flesh. If anybody claims to be doing something by the Holy Ghost and it's not really him, it's always going to be according to what they wanted to do, they from a natural standpoint wanted to do anyway. And a lot of times people make excuses for what they want to do anyway and say God said do it. And in those cases, in many of those situations where people have come and said, well, the Lord told me to do this. Once they say God told them, what am I supposed to say? I'd like to say you would know God's voice if it was the only thing that had ever been heard by mankind and that's obvious or you would know the Holy Ghost if you came walking in the room wearing a red hat but you can't say those things except in a setting like this and hope people get it <laughs> well what does it come down to it comes down to people not differentiating between their spirit their soul and their body. Now, you don't hear too much about this nowadays, but in, in days past, people would use an Old Testament example of Gideon putting out a fleece. You remember the story? God spoke to Gideon, told him he wanted him to be the deliverer of his people. Israel was under bondage to the Philistines, I believe it was, somebody anyway. And, uh, and God, the, an angel appeared unto Gideon and said, You're a mighty man of valor. He said that to him when he was threshing wheat behind the, the barn trying to hide out so that nobody would see him he said you're a mighty man of valor and god wants to lead you to uh wants you to lead the children of israel out of bondage well gideon argued with that a little bit as you could rightly understand he certainly didn't see himself as a mighty man of valor he certainly didn't see himself as a leader because he wasn't from a natural standpoint he wasn't any of those things so he asked god for signs he said, I want, to, I want you to give me a sign. I'm going to lay out a fleece, which is kind of a wool cloak. I'm going to put out a fleece. And if it's wet and the ground around is dry in the morning, then I'll know it's you. Now, people all the time want to use circumstances to prove out what is God and what isn't. But folks, there's something very interesting that nobody ever tells you about the story of Gideon and his fleece. The next morning when he woke up, the wool, the fleece was wet and the ground was dry and he still didn't know it was God. He had to do it again. He said, well, okay, we want to make sure this isn't just a coincidence. Tomorrow morning, let the fleece be dry and the ground be wet. Now, if if a fleece is so great and wonderful and it's the way you're going to know God, why did he have to do it twice? The fact of the matter is God doesn't lead you by circumstances. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, look what he did for Gideon. Yeah, that was Gideon. He's a man that doesn't have the spirit of God in him. Nobody could be born again at that point in time. He had no leading of the Holy Ghost on the inside of him. It was impossible for him to know the voice of God or to identify the voice of God for sure outside of the physical circumstances. But that's not the way God leads you now. Romans 8, 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, not led by fleeces, they are the sons of God. Now, you don't hear too much about fleeces nowadays. I don't know if people have just forgotten the story or times have changed or whatever the case is. But so often people are doing the same thing and it's exactly the same thing just using different terminology. They're praying for God to open or shut doors. Now Lord if this is you you open the door. Is God the only one that can open doors in this physical and natural realm. Well if you think that you had not gotten very far yet. The devil opens and shuts doors too. Lord if this is you then you close this door. What is that that's mankind that's the church saying we don't want to be led from the inside we want to be led by circumstances which is exactly what Gideon was doing with the fleece. Well if we don't distinguish and differentiate between spirit soul and body we're never going to know the leading of God because the Bible says God leads us in a very specific way. Romans 8, 14, we just quoted a couple of times, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. But if he left us just there without telling us how he's going to lead us, then we're going to come up with all kinds of goofy conclusions which the church has on how the Holy Ghost leads you. Verse 16 tells you how. Romans eight sixteen for uh, the, the Spirit himself, King James says itself, but he's not an it. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. He bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. He doesn't change circumstances to show us. He doesn't speak to our minds, which is a part of the soul to show us. He bears witness with our spirit. Now, a lot of people, unfortunately, in the church world, and and here again, uh, it, it seems to me, you judge it for yourself, but it seems to me that there's not much conversation about soul and spirit. used to be a lot more in the church world and, and as a result, a lot of people, most people perhaps, thought that the soul and the spirit were the same thing. And there are times where you can't tell what the Bible is referring to just by the use of the words themselves. You've got to look at the context. But the soul and the spirit can't be a, it can't be the same thing, because Hebrews four eleven, 4, I'm sorry, Hebrews four chapter twelve, Hebrews chapter four verse twelve. I'll get it right in a minute says that the word of God is quick and powerful, full of life and power, Weymouth's translation says, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Now, if you could divide the soul and the spirit, they couldn't be the same thing because to divide means to distinguish between, to separate. So the soul and the spirit can't be the same thing. But here again, you get people that without a knowledge of God's word, they, they'll follow, come to their mind, they'll say, oh, that had to be God. Why did it have to be God? Can't the devil put thoughts in your mind? He sure tried to put them in mine. That's why the Bible says to guard our minds, to judge everything, to, to judge every thought, take every thought captive and bring it into the obedience of the word of God. Why? Well, if the wrong thoughts couldn't come to your mind, there'd be nothing, to, no reason to take them captive, would there? See, a lot of people's thinking is wrong thinking and they don't judge it by the word. They don't judge it by the witness of their heart, their spirit. and So they never find out the world, the will of God for their lives. Now, the third passage or opening of scripture that we use for text scripture is in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27. It says the spirit of man, everybody say the spirit of, spirit of man. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord searching all the inward parts of the belly. Now, we don't use lamps too much anymore. He's not talking about a table lamp, although the, the, the use is similar. But the lamp that he's talking about in, uh, in the Old Testament was the only means of, of illumination that they had. And so if you were going to have any light in the dark whatsoever, you had to carry around one of these little oil lamps, which they called a candle or is it translated a candle in, Romans, in uh, Proverbs twenty twenty seven. So it's saying that the Spirit of the Lord uses your spirit, the Holy Spirit uses your spirit, not your mind and not your body not your physical circumstances, and not your thoughts to bring illumination to your life. Well, what areas of illumination do we need? We need revelation. We need the Holy Ghost to reveal things to us that we don't know. We need enlightenment. We need the Holy Ghost to show us things that we don't see. And we need guidance. We need the Holy Ghost to reveal to us or give us direction into where we don't know to go. how are those things going to happen you won't find a christian anywhere that says they don't want those things from god but how are they going to happen well god's going to open and shut doors no he's not god's going to make me think the right thoughts no he's not god's going to make me feel the right feelings no he's not what is he going to do he's going to bring illumination to your spirit He's going to bring guidance and direction to your spirit. Not your mind and not your body, but your spirit. Now, we talked a little bit about the soul last week and about how the, the will is a determining factor. Man is three parts, spirit, soul, and body. The spirit is the innermost part of man. It's where the eternal life of God uh, is, uh, is deposited. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians five seventeen, if any man be in Christ, talking about the born-again experience, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things become new. Now, what old things pass away? Do the things of the physical pass away? Well, if that was the case, you'd change hair color and eye color and and, and all sorts of things when you got born again. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great all you had to do is get in, get, to get in shape is get saved? That weight just drops off of you because old things pass away. Dream on, Brother. No, things of the body don't change. The physical realm doesn't change. The things of your physical body don't change and the things of the physical circumstances of your life don't change because you get saved. As a matter of fact, some of them get worse. Well, what changes? Do your thoughts change? It would be great if they would. No, in fact, the Bible says one of the first things for the born-again believer to do is to change his way of thinking, for him to change his way of thinking. Well, if he had to change his own way of thinking, that means his way of thinking hadn't already changed by the new birth. Doesn't it? F. F. Bosworth said, the first thing God asks of a, one of his new children is to change his thinking. Well, if things of the mind don't change and things of the body don't change, then that means the old things that have passed away are not physical things and they're not soulish things. What old things pass away? The things pertaining to your old man. The spirit of man. The old man that you were in Adam. The spirit that you were that was dead unto God. Separated and dead unto God. That's gone away. God puts a new spirit within you and then puts his spirit in that spirit. So spiritually all things become new. But only spiritually do they become new. God leaves it up to us to do something about our flesh, our bodies. And do something about our thinking. Those are our responsibility, not his. And the Bible tells us what to do about it. It tells us to renew our minds to the word of God and present our bodies a living sacrifice. Now, if we understand and come to to the understanding that we are a spirit being with the eternal life of God deposited in us. Now, here's another thought that you need to get squared away in your thinking. Too many Christians think that when we get to heaven, then we'll have eternal life. But the Bible says we know that we have passed from life to death now because we love the brethren. John said that in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14. We know, everybody say we know. It'd be good for Christians to know this. We know that we've passed from death to life, have passed from death to life. Not going to pass from death to life. Not when you get to heaven, then the life of God comes upon you or in you or some other way. We know that we have passed from death to life. You won't be any, you won't be any more a partaker of eternal life when you get to heaven than you are right now. As a matter of fact, we're going to be shocked when Jesus comes back for us. We're going to be shocked at how little change there is. We'll receive our redeemed bodies. But when Paul was caught up in heaven, now granted he didn't have his redeemed body. But Paul said when he was caught up into heaven, he didn't know whether he was in the body or out of the body. Think about that. He was caught up into heaven. And he couldn't tell whether he's in the body or out of the body. Look how little impact or how little effect or how little influence the body has on the believer who's renewed his mind to the word. He couldn't tell whether he's in the body or out of the body. Now, if I'd been with Paul and he'd been caught up into heaven, I could have told, told him right away when he got back, you were either in your body or out of your body. Your body either disappeared or it stayed put. But he couldn't tell. He couldn't tell. Folks, spiritual things are just as real and in one sense even more real than physical things. So how are we to ascertain, how are we to distinguish this inward leading, this inward guidance by the Holy Ghost? Well, notice again in Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. What does he bear witness with our spirits to? That we are the children of God. That we are the children of God. That we are the children of God. First thing Paul mentions about the leading of the Holy Ghost, the guidance of the Holy Spirit within, is that He'll reveal to you, He'll guide you, He'll lead you into knowledge regarding who you are in Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16 and verse 13. Jesus talking about the work of the Holy Ghost that was to come. From, from that point in time, he would, what he would do after Jesus was raised from the dead. Notice he said in verse 13, Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. One translation translates the, the word truth as reality. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of reality, has come, he'll guide you into all reality. I like that. Because I want to know things that are real, I don't just want to know things that are temporal. Sure, there are some earthly and natural things that we need to know, but I want to know things that are real. I want to know about things that are eternal. He'll guide you into all truth. Notice what it says. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, he shall speak and will show you things to come. What does it mean that the Holy Ghost won't speak of himself? It means he's not the originator of the words that he speaks. Now, if you remember, the Bible says, Paul even said about the revelation that he received and what he wrote down for the church, Paul said that all scripture is given by inspiration of the Holy Ghost. So the word of God is given by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, but if they're not, it's not his words. Whose words are they? Well, of the of the Trinity, who's the word? The Bible says Jesus was the word made flesh. So when Jesus says... He shall not speak of himself. He's saying he'll speak whatever he hears me say. He'll speak whatever he hears me say and will show you things to come. He will show you things to come. Now show means to reveal, doesn't it? He will show unto you or reveal unto you things to come. Let's keep reading verse 14. He shall glorify me for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. He shall show it unto you. He'll take the things that are mine and reveal them, in other words. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore, I said that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Back up to chapter 14 and verse 26. Notice what Jesus said about the Holy Ghost. He calls him the Comforter here. But notice what he says about the Holy Ghost here in this verse. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. Well, that means guide you into all truth. He'll teach you all things. And bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. So what is Jesus telling us that the work of the Holy Ghost is? Well, the work of the Holy Ghost is to speak the words of Jesus. To bring to our remembrance the words that he spoke here on the earth. But to speak those things which are not recorded in the scripture. That are related to our well-being also. He'll show you things to come. He'll show you things to come. Now, put these two scriptures, or these three scriptures together. Put these scriptures together, Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Paul is telling us by the Holy Spirit the same thing Jesus said, just using different terms. He said the Holy Ghost will show you who you are in Christ. What is Paul's gospel and Paul's revelation all about? In other words, what did the Holy Ghost reveal to him That we know of now is the word of God. Who we are in Christ. That's what Paul's letters are all about. Who we are in Christ. What's the one thing the church world at large doesn't seem to know? Who we are in Christ. Why is it that the work of the Holy Ghost is going. Is producing so little fruit in the the life of the average Christian. Is it the Holy Ghost fault? What happened? What happened is people aren't giving attendance to the revelation that the Holy Ghost has brought to us. What's the key to victory in life? Knowing who you are in Christ. And folks, that's what renewing your mind to the word is all about. That's what the inward witness is all about, is recognizing the first and foremost place the Holy Ghost is going to lead you is into the word of God. Into the knowledge of who you are in Christ. Yeah, Pastor Mike, that all sounds well and good, but I need to know whether to make this investment tomorrow. That's all well and good, but I need to know whether to marry this person or not. That's all well and good, but I need to know whether to take this job offer that's been presented to me. And we could use 50,000 different examples. So what are we doing? We're putting natural things ahead of spiritual things. Folks, you know as well as I do that billions of dollars are spent every year on the development of the body. Even more billions of dollars are spent every year on the education of the mind. Where's the training of the spirit? It'd be nice to say, well, that's the church's job. And it is the church's job. But what kind of job is the church doing on that front? Doesn't look like there's much being done to me. Yet what's more important than the training of the human spirit when it's the spirit of man that God uses to enlighten you and give you direction? Can you tell me anything that's more important than spiritual development? Well, I've got to make a living. Well, guess who leads you into the knowledge of how to walk in victory in that area? The Holy Ghost. How does he do it? Well, he just dumps money on you overnight. You just wake up in the morning, there's a pile of money in the floor. With a note on it saying, this is a gift from me, signed the Holy Ghost. Uh, Somehow it seems to me that some people think that that is going to work kind of like that. Because they put no effort into spiritual development and they put all their effort into natural or physical things. And so many times in those situations, they're looking to circumstances to tell them whether or not they're doing the right things or not. Well, if this works, that means God's in it. Not so. I've seen a lot of things work that took people away from God. One of the greatest examples I have ever seen and ever heard is written right in the Bible about being led by the Holy Ghost. Let me show you what being led by the Holy Ghost is really like. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. I don't know if you know this or not, but the Holy Ghost gives you a perfect example of how to know how to follow his leading. It's in the Apostle Paul's life. Paul talked more about being developed in spirit and being sensitive in spirit and being led by his spirit than any of the other writers. Well, I wonder if he lived what he preached. Yeah, he did. And look and see how. Acts chapter 19. Paul is in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. Ephesus. And I, let me turn in my Bible. There's, uh, there's some verses we probably ought to pull out here. It says that uh, it starts with about 12 people. He, he thinks they're saved, but they're not. When he goes to Ephesus for the first time, he finds out that they're uh, followers of John the Baptist, But then uh, John the Baptist's message is, there's one coming after me. Jesus is coming after me, but they never knew that Jesus came. They never knew what he did. So Paul gets them saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he begins to preach in in the city. There are um, uh, certain Jews and others that uh, resist the message. And uh, so he goes to another place and and begins to preach. And and boy, I mean to have a great revival. It says in verse 10, this continued by the space of two years so that all they that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles. Paul is having a two-year revival just by teaching the word. Now, you know as well as I do that if he's just teaching the word without some kind of signs following or some kind of uh, accompanying results, nobody's going to keep believing it for two years. After two years, somebody's going to say, wait a minute, I thought this stuff was supposed to work. But we don't have any record of what those things were. Which tells me that wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Is just God confirming his word with signs following. The Lord watching over his word to perform it in the lives of the people that were putting it in practice. Which... You know, we make a big deal about miracles, and, and rightly so. We make a big deal about the spectacular events in the Scripture, and rightly so. But you're not going to live on spectacular events. The Word of God is designed to take you through day after day after day. And Jesus talked about the Word of God being like planting seed in the ground. Now I've got a little garden planted out behind my house. All I've got this year are tomatoes. Tomatoes. And I don't have spectacular growth on any one day. But just little by little by little, even in some ways that are not even perceptible to me, now I've got a yard full of tomatoes. Now, when I first planted these little plants, I mean, they were just a couple inches tall. And I'm looking at it, and I remember thinking, will they ever get big? But they did. Little by little, by little, by little, by little. Now, I think what happens is a lot of people, and that's a good example, a good picture of your spiritual life. Jesus talked about us, as uh, the Scripture talks about us as being like trees planted by the rivers of living water. One of the trees Jesus used as an example was the mustard tree. He said the mustard seed's the smallest of all seeds, but it grows up into one of the biggest trees. Well, it sure doesn't look like there's a big tree in that little seed, does it? In the same way, it may not look like, from your natural and physical circumstances, it may not look like you are who the Bible says you are. But you are, and you get there little by little by little, day by day by day. I'm so glad I didn't dig up those tomato plants when they were little, wondering what was going on with them, wondering why I wasn't getting the results as quickly as I wanted to. That's the way spiritual development is, folks. It's little by little by little. And if you're not willing to stay in for, in, in for the long haul, you might as well give up now and go find something you'd rather do. Because I can't promise you a spectacular miracle tomorrow. Now, what does the Bible say? You're going to have one. And a lot of people get discouraged by that. Well, Pastor Mike, I've been believing God for my healing for a week. When is this going to happen? Well, a lot of it may have to do with us. You know what I found? And I don't know everything. Far from it. But one of the things that I found, and I realized this the other day, I don't know if it was the Holy Ghost told me or if I just realized this on my own. But either way, it fits with the scripture. I have never seen anybody healed that's asking when. Now, maybe you have. But not me. I've never seen anybody receive the promise of God for whatever they're standing on or believing for while they're saying when. Now, whether you whether that's 100 percent accurate in every case or not, I I can't say. But I do know the principle is true. You better deal with the wins. Before you expect to receive your answer. Well, praise the Lord. Thanks for coming. Okay, back to Paul. Paul's having a two-year revival. And notice the extent of that revival. All of Asia hears from one place. He doesn't have to travel from place to place. All Asia is hearing from this one place. God will sometimes put you in positions and sometimes he'll put you in places that have far greater spheres of influence than you would ever imagine. I doubt very seriously if Paul walked into Ephesus and said, okay, this is the place I'm going to reach Asia from. He's probably as surprised as the results as anybody. And it tells us about one special miracle that takes place, or s- several of them, I guess. Verse 11, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. Notice he's reaching Asia before the miracles are mentioned. So that from his body were brought into the sick handkerchiefs or aprons and the diseases departed from them and the evil spirits went out of them. Then the next several verses tell us about these seven sons of one man named Siva. The Siva was a Jewish exorcist. He had seven sons that are hearing Paul preach. They've been hearing him preach for several years in town now. And apparently Paul has, gotten, has demonstrated authority over evil spirits because they take the name of Jesus that Paul is preaching and try to do the same thing. They try to get the same results. And so they came upon one person that was demon-possessed. And they said, we adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out of it. And the evil spirit that was in that man, the possessed man, said, well, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? Now, let me take a little side journey here for just a second. I'll try not to use up all my time on it. But remember what we said a few minutes ago in Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. What's the number one way that the Holy Ghost is going to lead you? He's going to lead you into the knowledge of who you are in Christ. Notice the devil's question to these seven guys. Who are you? Who are you? Well, we don't have any evidence that these guys are even saved. It implies that they're trying to get God results with natural, in a natural process, and you can't. But for me, this says something very significant. And that is, the devil's always looking for who you are. He's looking to see who, whether or not you know who you are. Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? Paul knew who it was to such a degree that the devil could call him by name. Can he with you? That might be something to aspire to. Now, folks, let me also say this in passing, and that is, I don't believe the devil's ever going to know the name of anybody who's trying to run away to get away from run to get away from him. If you're afraid of the devil and trying to stay away from him all you can, he's never going to know your name. But you deal with him on his ground, on his turf, he'll learn who you are just like he learned who Paul was. Well, the devil showed that he didn't have any respect for these guys and so it says that the evil spirit in this guy um, influenced him and strengthened him to such a degree that he jumped on all seven of these guys, whipped them, stripped off their clothes and they ran naked down the street. Now, notice the result of that. What did Paul have to do with that other than teaching the word? Anything? He didn't cause this miracle. I doubt if Paul's in his prayer room, prayer closet, say, Lord, have seven unsaved people try to cast the devil out of somebody so that everybody can see what happens. He's just going about his business, and this takes place. Verse 17, it says, And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed, that means people that are saved, people that are in the church. Many of that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. A couple of years ago, this, uh, the value of this would have been $6 million. Can I ask you a question? What are believers doing with curious arts and occult stuff? And when it says they believed and confessed their deeds, they repented and confessed their deeds, why should they have had to? Why are they still involved in wrong things? Folks, what I want you to see is the power that's demonstrated in the name of Jesus and the failure of these seven guys and the way the devil dealt with them and so forth was that that spurred these Christians to go all in with God. Before then, Christianity was just something they did, I guess. Can we say it this way? Until this event, they were nominal Christians. They were ordinary, average Christians. But it caused them to be committed Christians. 100% sold out to God. Now, notice what it says in the result of that in verse 20. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Now, folks, if you put these previous verses, verses 18, 19, and 20 together, It'd be real easy to draw a conclusion that the word of God grows mightily and prevails when Christians are 100% committed. At least it did there. Now, don't get me wrong. They've been in a two-year revival. But it was only after the people committed themselves to the things of God completely. Man, that's when things went wild. Why hadn't they before? It doesn't say Paul started doing better teaching. Doesn't even say the Holy Ghost did more miracles. The decision was theirs. And only theirs. I wonder what the Holy Ghost has been doing for the two years that these people have been, some of these people at least, have been saved in in the church. Trying to reveal to them who they are in Christ. Trying to lead them to put this other stuff away. Trying to show them how important it is to be committed to God completely. I wonder what the Holy Ghost is doing in the church today. Same thing. But notice it's only when the people choose. When the people decide. That's when things really grow. That's when things take off. I wonder how many Christians are praying, oh, Lord, move. And they're holding on to just like this. I didn't plan to go this way, but I'm here. Something to think about, isn't it? Okay, Paul, after having been there for three and a half years, having the greatest revival and the greatest results of any place that we have record of that he went, notice what it says next. It says in verse 21, After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Now, the sentence construction here is kind of misleading. So let me rearrange a couple of things. And you can see from the, from the scripture itself, just in the King James, that is true. But there are many other translations that will bear this out as well. But notice it's really saying, after these things were ended, and when Paul had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, he purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Now, the reason that, that I want to point this out is because I want you to see the progression of things. Paul leaves Ephesus, and he starts going through Macedonia and Achaia, two regions not, not, too, close, or not too far away from the uh, place where Ephesus is. And then it says, Paul purposed in the Spirit. Richelieu's translation says it, says it this way. I really like this. The Spirit moved Paul to plan. The Spirit moved Paul to plan. What did he move him to plan to do? Well, first to go to Jerusalem and after that to go to Rome. Now, the word purpose is interesting because the word purpose means to lay down flat or to fall prostrate. So the implication is Paul made this decision through much prayer and committing himself to the things of God. Now, I want you to hold your finger here, but I want you to turn with me. Look over to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Here's Paul's instruction to the church, which includes you and me, to spirit-filled, born-again, spirit-filled believers. And notice what he tells them. Beginning in verse 1, he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holding the acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Most translations translate that spiritual worship. If you want to know how to worship in spirit, remember Jesus said to the woman at the well of Samaria in John chapter 4, God is the spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Well, what is spiritual worship by God's definition? I know the church has got all kinds of definition, but what's God's definition of spiritual worship? To present your body a living sacrifice. To let your spirit dominate your flesh, in other words. In the Old Testament, they made animal sacrifices as a sign that they were giving themselves to God and the blood of that sacrifice was offered as a, a covering for their sins. Under the New Covenant, the blood of Jesus is offer, offered; has been offered to do away with your sins, to make you a new creature in Him. So what's our temple worship or the equivalent thereof? What did the temple worship, the animal sacrifice of the Old Testament represent for us? Presenting our bodies a living sacrifice. Being dominated from the inside. The eternal part of man, the spirit of man. Rather than our natural desires. Now how are we going to do that? Verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. That you may prove, determined by experience... What is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God? Verse 3 goes on. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think, King James adds of himself, but, and that would be true in principle, but the, the, those words are not there. For I say through the grace of God given unto me to every man that is among you not to think more highly of, of himself or of anything else for that matter. than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith, that he may prove by experience what is the good and acceptable word of God or will of God for his life. Notice that's the whole purpose of this. It's the whole purpose for renewing your mind to the word, to prove, to experience what is the will of God for your life. Now, can we put these things together? I mean, wouldn't the Holy Ghost, if he's going to guide you into all truth, wouldn't he be guiding you into God's perfect will for your life? Would he guide you any other place but other than the perfect will of God for your life? Of course not. And notice that the key to finding the will of God, the key which includes presenting your bodies as living sacrifice and renewing your mind to the word comes down to one basic choice or act of the will. And that is this. You'll never know the will of God if you don't first submit your will to his. In other words, God doesn't say, well, okay, I know you haven't made up your mind what you're going to do yet, but I want to show you what my plan is for you. Now you choose. It never works that way, folks. Instead, the way it works is Christians go through life in the dark until they get to the place where they say, Lord, whatever it is you want for me, whatever it is you have for me, no matter what I might thought my plans were for myself or anything else until... Uh, They get to the point where they say, Lord, your will be done in my life, not mine. You'll never know the will of God for your life. Never. So the will of God is revealed by the Holy Ghost only to those who have first and foremost submitted their will to his. Now, folks, I could preach for years on this one point. Because it's so easy for us to think that we're submitted to God's will but holding on to our own plans. And I'm not talking about people that are against God. I'm not talking about people that, that are trying to get away with something or run a game on God or trying to be a hypocrite and live a secret, secret life. Or I'm not talking about any of that kind of stuff. I'm talking about people that genuinely love God. I remember John Osteen talking about how that uh, before he built his building, the first building that they were in, not the one that Joel's got now downtown, but the one that they had out in um, the outskirts of town over in, in um, the, well, it's a city, but it's a suburb of Houston, the city of Humble, Texas. The building that they built out in the middle of nowhere at the time, things had built up around it some. But he said he wanted to build that building for 15 years before he ever could. And he said there were times where he'd see younger men in the ministry Building these big buildings and having these great meetings and conventions and so forth. He said on a couple of occasions, he just got mad about it. He said, I just decided, well, if they can do it, I can do it. So he had announced to his church, folks, we're going to start building our new building. I have to come back next week and say, no, we're not. I got ahead of things. The Lord dealt with me about it. I uh, just trying to do it on my own. He said that that went on for years. Finally, it was, when, it was after he had had a heart attack and he was in the hospital that the Lord spoke to him and said, okay, now I want you to build your building. And he said, Lord, you've got to be kidding. I just had a heart attack. He said, yeah, now when I get it done, you'll know that it was me and not you. And they did get it done. Something like a $15 million facility and never took a special offering. Never. Man, that's got to be God. Well, what was it that happened? He got in the flesh and wanted to do things that he saw other people doing. I've seen preachers leave the right churches and take wrong churches because of their own desires for things. I've seen people create ideas for ministries in their mind and never got it off the ground because it was something they had a vision for, something they had a plan for. But it wasn't God's plan, it was theirs. I've seen people leave the right jobs and take the wrong jobs. All because of something that they thought. Many times for the right reasons. I've seen people leave good jobs, good paying jobs, jobs that God gave them to go into ministry-related jobs that God never was in. Why? Well, you can't say it wasn't because they loved God. You can't say that they just decided they were going to rebel against what they knew was right. Well, then why do people make those kind of decisions? Why do people make those kind of wrong decisions? Because it takes some effort to submit your will to his. And until you do, you're never going to know the perfect plan of God for your life. I think there's a lot of Christians that are walking in the shadows of things. They're not walking in the light. But they're walking in the edges. Kind of half in the light and half in the dark. When it comes to the things of God and the will of God. Back to Acts chapter 19. Paul purposed in the spirit. In other words, he made a spiritual decision about what he was going to do and how he was going to do it. I think he made a spiritual decision to leave Ephesus. Why in the world would you want to leave there? And the whole world is finding out about you and your ministry. Signs and wonders are being done. Not only that, but the name of Jesus is being magnified through Paul. I mean, after all, how many people does the devil say, Jesus, I know, and -and so-and-so I know, but who are you? Paul could put on his newsletters, the one that the devil knows. Folks, there's some pretty heady stuff in here. But he leaves right in the middle of it. And he purposed in the Spirit, saying, after I've been to Jerusalem, I must also see Rome. Skip with me over to chapter 20. Many months go by. we don't know how long it is, but he goes to Macedonia and Achaia. He spends three months in Greece and, and undetermined amount of times or unrevealed amount of times in other places, other cities. But he sends back to the elders at, at Ephesus, thinking he's never going to see them again. And notice one of the things he says to them in verse 22. He says, "And now behold, I go bound in the spirit unto Jerusalem. Notice that phrase, "Bound in the spirit." What does that mean? He goes bound in the spirit. What could that mean if not I go knowing from my spirit and by the direction of the Holy Spirit within my own spirit that this is what I'm supposed to do? How did he get that kind of information from God? That purpose in the spirit or laying prostrate before the Lord in the spirit has a lot to do with finding out what God wants for us to do. I don't know if that was figuratively or literally, but either way works. But he set himself before the Lord to find out what God's plan was rather than making his own. And now he says it. He says, And now I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save or accept. The Holy Ghost witnesses unto me in every city that bonds and afflictions await me. Now let me read this verse of Scripture to you uh, uh, from the Amplified because I like how it says it. This is Acts chapter 20 and verse 22. Let me find it. Here it is. And now you see I'm going to Jerusalem bound by the Holy Spirit and obligated and compelled by the convictions of my own spirit, not knowing the things that will befall me. In other words, Paul says, I am compelled by the Holy Ghost. How? Within my own heart, within my own spirit. What is he saying? He's saying, I know that I know that I know this is what I'm supposed to do. Now, folks, if Paul can have that kind of assurance and you and I can't, then God's a respecter of persons. And a lot of the Bible's a lie. But if Paul can have that kind of conviction by the Holy Ghost and we're all children of God and have a right and a responsibility in my opinion to be led by the Holy Ghost then that means you and I can be just as sure of our direction and our steps as he was of his if we give the same effort and attention to spiritual things that he did that we can't expect to get those kind of results but in a different way or a different manner than he says by the Holy Ghost we can get there we can't create our own path to get to that place and that's what it looks to me like a lot of Christians are doing. They say, oh, you know, I know. No, Pastor Mike, I know. No point in telling me what the Bible says. I know. Okay. And then, of course, when it doesn't work out, they want you to help pick up the pieces. And you want to say, I thought you knew. But you don't. Try to help them all you can. But this is a place that we can all get to. Paul knew that he knew that he knew that he was doing the right thing. Now, folks, I'm going to show you something else about this that's uh, that's interesting, at least it is to me. But you should be aware that theologians argue today about whether or not Paul missed it going to Rome, going to Jerusalem and Rome. It's a great topic of controversy and discussion in Bible schools all over the world. You got people that are basing big parts of their ministry on saying Paul missed it. Now I'm convinced that the reason for that controversy is because people, and and let me say it this way, it's only controversial it seems to me among those that don't know anything about being led by the Holy Ghost. But Paul said he knew. How well did he know? He said, well... I know uh, that I'm bound in the spirit going to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save or accept that the Holy Ghost witnesses in every city saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Can I ask you this? Why is the Holy Ghost showing him that he's going to be thrown in jail and taken captive if that's what he wants him to do? See, here's where people try to go by circumstance. So many people in every one of these controversial guys or guys that enter into the controversy about did Paul miss it when he went to Jerusalem and to Rome. All go by. The Holy Ghost is trying to tell him in every city, don't go, don't go, don't go. But notice that's not what Paul said. Paul said the Holy Ghost shows me what's waiting for me when I do go. He never said the Holy Ghost told me not to go. Big difference in knowing that something's coming down the road and God telling you to avoid it. However, most Christians, at the slightest hint of trouble, spiritually or otherwise, will run the other direction. Thinking that means God can't possibly want me to be there. But folks, if the word doesn't show itself stronger than your problems, what good is it? And where is the word going to be shown to be stronger than your problems if not in the middle of your problems? I think too many Christians have this idea that, well, the Holy Ghost is going to lead us into victory, so that means we'll never have any trouble in life. Just float through life on flowery beds of ease, as Brother Hagin used to say. (laughs) I miss that guy. Float through life on flowery beds of ease, and we'll show what strong Christians we are. Well, is a strong Christian a Christian that never has any trouble, or a strong Christian one that overcomes what trouble comes? Jesus said in this world you'll have tribulation but be of good cheer; I will become the world he didn't say you wouldn't have trouble he said you would so Paul says the only thing I do know don't know everything about it but the only thing I do know now get this Paul said he did not know everything that's going to happen which means the Holy Ghost has not revealed to him every part of the plan what has he revealed to him that he wants him to go there well what do we know about him going there Well, I know they're going to put me in jail. They're going to take me captive. That'd be enough for most people to run the other way, wouldn't it? But notice what Paul says in verse 24. But none of these things move me. Paul said, I'm not moved by the knowledge that they're going to take me captive and put me in jail. I would suggest to you folks that you can count on one hand the number of Christians that that wouldn't move probably have fingers to spare but that's what paul said he said none of these things moved me well if he's not moved by the circumstances the revelation of the circumstance that he's going to be taken captive and put in jail bonds and afflictions bonds means captivity jail time afflictions means trouble well fill in the blank whichever you think afflictions are related to being thrown in jail He said, none of these things move me. He said, the Holy Ghost is showing me this in city after city after city. Every city that I go to, the Holy Ghost is witnessing to me. Witnessing to me. Now, he's got to be talking about some kind of witness other than just what's on the inside of him. Because it wouldn't have anything to do with the cities if it was just on the inside of him. So he's talking about, and we'll show you an example of it here in just a few minutes. He's got to be talking about the Holy Ghost revealing in some other way that this is what's going to happen in Jerusalem, in Rome. But he says, I'm not moved by that. I'm not moved by the knowledge that circumstances are going to get tough. I'm not moved by the knowledge, the revelation, that things are going to be inconvenient. None of these things move me. Well, if the circumstances and trouble that's ahead doesn't move him, what does move him? Only what's in his heart. Only the witness of the Holy Spirit within him. Folks, you want to see an example of a a true believer? You want to see an example of a victorious man? This is it. I'm going to Jerusalem bound in the Spirit because the Holy Ghost has directed me and witnessed to me and borne witness with my spirit that that's what I'm supposed to do. Not moved at all by the circumstances and the trouble that's awaiting me. None of these things move me. None of these things move me. What does that tell us? It tells us that Paul has submitted his will to the will of God. And if the will of God is for him to go into a tr- city where there's going to be trouble, if the will of God is for him to go into a city where there's going to be jail time, so be it. I'm going to follow what the Holy Ghost tells me to do. Now, you've got to realize also, Acts 16 has already occurred. When Paul was thrown in prison before, at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard him and suddenly there was a mighty earthquake and all the prison doors opened and everybody's chains fell off their hands and feet. What does Paul have to fear from prison? It's just another place to see the power of God. None of these things move me. Neither count on my life dear unto myself. He doesn't even know. Please get this. He doesn't know this may be the end of my life. He doesn't have some kind of witness. He doesn't say, but Jesus has told me I'll live through it. He didn't have any of that. He's going by one and only one thing, and that is the witness of the Spirit within his own heart or spirit. Sounds like Paul knew what he's talking about when he says, As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they're the sons of God. The word he uses there is not the word for children in verse 16. The word sons in Romans eight fourteen is different from the word children in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the sons of God. Or I'm sorry, that we are the children of God. That's a different word. The word that he uses for sons in Romans eight fourteen means adult sons. In other words, he's talking about here's part of growing up. Here's part of growing up, being led by the Holy Ghost. Because he'll bear witness with our spirits even the youngest believer that we're the children of God. None of these things move me, he said. Neither count I my life dear unto myself that, so that I might finish my course with joy. What matters to me is finishing God's plan for my life, his purpose for me. Don't care about the trouble, don't care about the inconvenience, don't care about the affliction, don't care about the bonds. What matters to me is experiencing the good an acceptable and perfect will of the Father for my life. And this is a guy you can follow. So that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Turn with me over to chapter 21. Chapter 21, it says... Beginning in verse 3, now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was made to unlaid her burden. And finding certain disciples, this is in Syria, and finding certain disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. See, this is where people get some of their argument. They say, well, see, the Holy Ghost told him not to go. Well, if the Holy Ghost told him not to go, then Paul did not know anything about being led by the Spirit, which means we should be very suspect of the verses of Scripture that he gives us about being led by him. What is it saying? They said to Paul by the Spirit that he shouldn't go up to Jerusalem. What does this mean? Well, he's already told us that every city he goes to, this is no exception, where he gets to in Syria is no exception, every city he goes to, people are witnessing by the Holy Spirit. That bonds and afflictions await him. What are they doing? Well, they have revelation. They have supernatural revelation. The revelation is Paul's going to be thrown in jail. Bad things are going to happen to Paul. So what do they do? They put their own interpretation on it. But folks, I can tell you how how this works. When the Lord spoke to us, finally, witness to my heart about coming here to pastor I put my own interpretation on that and almost missed God. I knew by the Spirit that this is where I was supposed to come, but I thought I was supposed to take take over another church that was here. But when that other church called somebody else to pastor, what do I do now? Then I had to go back to praying and realize what the Lord told me was to come here and pastor. See, I put my own interpretation on it. If he told me to pastor, that means there's already a church in place. Says who? I thought so so what did I do? I told, started telling some people I'm going to go take over a church out there in California. We were living in Oklahoma at the time. I told some of my friends we're going to change, change our uh, location. We're going to change what we're doing. I'm going to take over another church out there. Well then the other church called another pastor. So easy to take the things that God is showing you and put your own interpretation of what he says or what he reveals. That's what's happening here. It's the Holy Ghost is showing him about what's going to happen, showing them about what's going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem, but it's their own interpretation that he shouldn't go. So they said to Paul through the Spirit that he shouldn't go into Jerusalem, and then it says, uh, verse eight, the next day with we it, where Paul's company departed and came into Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins which did prophesy. Notice it doesn't say they're prophets. He said they prophesied. And as we tarried there, many days there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. Now, here's a guy that stands in the ministry office of the prophet. Now, whether you know this or not, the ministry office of the prophet, the example that we have in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, is that a prophet has at least two of the manifestations of the Spirit in the area of revelation operating in his ministry. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and or discerning of spirits he's going to have two we don't have any record of any prophet in the scripture that doesn't have at least two of those three manifesting in his ministry on top of that he's going to have the gift of prophecy so that he could speak by the inspiration of god to the people so that much we know about this guy there may be other things that god uses him in or other ways that that uh, that god uses him in too but we know at least that So the prophet comes down, and when he was come down unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost. Please notice how Agabus the prophet says it. Here's what the Holy Ghost is saying. Now, what does he say? So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owns this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. In other words, Agabus comes down, takes Paul's girdle or belt, the thing that he uses to tie up the robe and stuff that he wore, and he wraps it around his hands. And he says, here's what the Holy Ghost is saying. Just like I bound myself with your girdle or your belt, so shall the Jews bind in Jerusalem the man that owns it, which is Paul. Now, notice what the next verse says. That's it. The Holy Ghost is done talking. That's the revelation from the Holy Ghost. Notice what it says next. And when we Luke is the writer of this. Luke's one of the company, so he includes himself. And he said, and when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. What are they doing? They're putting their own interpretation on what he should do based on what the Holy Ghost has said. And they conclude, Luke being one of them, they conclude, Paul, you shouldn't go. You shouldn't go. What's he doing? He's doing the same thing that the other disciples did in verse 4. They're saying through the Spirit that Paul shouldn't go. What do they have from the Holy Ghost? The same revelation that Agabus had. What are they doing with that revelation? Putting their own interpretation on it just like the company that's with Luke says. And when we heard that, both we and they of that place, that means Philip and his seven daughters, or four daughters, I'm sorry. Both we and they of that place besought him not to go up into Jerusalem. Notice he doesn't include Agabus. Notice he does not include Agabus. We mean being the company, they of that place being Philip and his four daughters. Agabus is the only one in the group being left out. Why? Because Agabus probably has enough experience as a prophet to know you don't put your own interpretation on stuff. And then Paul answered, what mean you to weep and break my heart? for I'm ready not to be bound only but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus now the company that's with Paul and been traveling with Paul they've heard in every city some witness of the Holy Ghost about Paul being thrown in jail in Jerusalem city after city after city we have no record that anybody has said up to this point in time Paul maybe you shouldn't go but finally we get to the place where in Syria man this isn't just on one continent now it's on another continent Every continent knows Paul's going to be thrown in jail. Or so it seems. Maybe by that time the company is saying, you know, maybe God's trying to tell us something. Agabus comes down, does his thing, and finally they all break. They say, oh God, Paul, don't go, don't go. And then Paul says, Paul answers and says, what is this? What mean you to weep and break my heart? For I am not ready, I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, please notice that phrase, when he would not be persuaded, the people closest to him, the equivalent of our family members, are trying to talk him out of doing what he has in his heart to do by the witness of the Spirit. Now, nowhere along the way do we have a vision yet. Nowhere along the way do we have a voice from heaven saying, Paul, go to Jerusalem, no matter what anybody says. Nowhere along the way way, do we have the experience, the circumstances that we might want to confirm what God's direction is. In fact, you have every circumstance that you can imagine coming through all kinds of different people from all kinds of different places saying, don't, 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 don't. Or at least circumstances... And revelation of the Holy Ghost that you could interpret that way. And when he would not be persuaded, verse 14, and when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, The will of the Lord be done. Now let me rearrange this a little bit and, and, and put some explanation on here and see if it doesn't fit. Paul was not persuaded by their pleas not to go to Jerusalem. He was not persuaded by the source of their pleas for him not to go, which were the, the witnesses in every city, the, the disciples in Syria, Agvas message from the Lord. He was not persuaded by any of that not to go. That means something was stronger in him to go than every circumstance he had and everything everybody said and every feeling and well-wishing intent and all that other kind of stuff from all the people that we're talking to. What was stronger in him then all the circumstantial evidence, the witness of his spirit, the inward witness. What therefore happened? If they couldn't persuade him, what did he do? He persuaded the group. Because they stopped saying, the will of the Lord be done. In other words, he persuaded them, it's the will of God for me to go. It's not the will of God for me to avoid being thrown in jail. It's the will of God for me to go wherever Jesus sends me. Now let me prove it to you. Turn with me over one more chapter. Chapter 23. Two more chapters. Chapter 23. After Paul goes to Jerusalem. He's taken captive by the Jewish leadership. He appeals to Caesar. So they send him to Rome. On the way to Rome. Rome. Verse 11, and in the night following, the Lord stood by him. Now, here's a vision. He didn't have a vision about going to Rome or going to Jerusalem. But once he gets to Jerusalem, runs into the trouble that, that, that the Holy Ghost warned him of all along the way. Now, Jesus shows up. Now, folks, you know as well as I do that if Paul somewhere he shouldn't have, shouldn't have been. Jesus would have said, what in the world are you doing here? I sent you every witness, prophets and otherwise to keep you from coming here. Did you not realize, was it not clear to you that if you come here, they're going to throw you in jail? Now they have, and it's your fault. That would have been the perfect opportunity for the Lord to rebuke him, wouldn't it? But notice what the Lord says to him. The night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou also bear witness of me at Rome. In other words, if you 'll allow me to put my own interpretation on this, Jesus is saying, "Paul, be of good cheer you 're right where I wanted you to be you 're right where I wanted you to be now let me let me close with this I know i 'm out of time, but let me let me close with this real quick. Um, I worked with Brother Hagen until um, early summer of 1984 at that point in time we knew it was time for us to go knew it was time for us to leave Tulsa and leave brother Hagen's ministry and really through kind of a process of elimination we wound up traveling on the road to other churches we did some work in in the states and did some uh, ministry work overseas mostly in Europe and um um it was interesting because a lot of the places that we went to, we were the first ones that smaller churches had ever had, first ones meaning guest ministers that some small churches had ever had. Um, in in other cases, there were churches that had had guest ministers that had created a real problem for them, so they quit having them, and we were the first ones to, to, for them to uh, to have back in. It seemed like every, almost every place that we went, certainly over 75 to 80% of the places that we went were pioneer situations. And we couldn't figure that out. We had other good friends in the ministry that had been in the ministry longer than us that were doing the same thing as us. And, man, they were going to places and getting big offerings, easy places, nice hotels, stuff like that. Man, we were staying in some of the most God-awful places you could ever imagine. And, And I didn't care. Beth did. She cared big time and it did get difficult and and I realized it was easier for me on the road it was than it was for her because I'm the one doing all the ministry she's sitting in services you know having to go back to the chicken coop for a hotel and that kind of thing that we had some hotels we'd traded for chicken coops let me tell you <laughs> there's some real difficult places well we did this for about uh oh I don't know over a year and uh we had been, to, we'd been overseas, been to Europe a couple of times, and the people in Europe didn't care who you were. Here in the States, everybody cares who you are. And they look at you like, well, we've never heard of you. What can you possibly have to say? Well, that gets old after a while. I mean, not, not from an ego standpoint. I'm not in this for ego. Listen, if you're, in, if you're interested in any in ego boost, ministry is not the place for you. Trust me. Um. So, we'd been doing this for about a year and we got overseas, and people didn't care who you were. They were just hungry for the word. Man, that was like cool water to a thirsty soul. So, we started thinking maybe we'd move overseas. We're going to travel and minister anyway, and, and the Lord doesn't tell us otherwise. Why not go where people want to hear the word? And it was night and day difference between the experiences that we had in the States. Now, that, don't get me wrong, there were good places that we went to and precious people in every place. Um, but there was just a, there's just an American attitude, American spiritual attitude that's, that that was different. I haven't been overseas in a long time, but at least, at least at that point in time was different than it is now. So we were thinking, well, maybe we'll move to France. Maybe we'll travel there and do some things overseas. And somehow or another, that just didn't seem right. I didn't have a word from the Lord, but it, it, we were thinking about it and didn't have any direction to do or not to do anything. So it's kind of like, well, I don't know. We'll see. Well, there was a frustration that was beginning to build on the inside of me. And I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out why. Now, folks, please listen to me and and learn something about being led by the Holy Ghost. A lot of people think frustration means change today. It doesn't. Frustration means change is coming. But a lot of times people will get frustrated and they'll jump out of the nest before they've developed wings to fly. And they're not ready to go to the next place. So the circumstances haven't been arranged by the Lord for them to get to the next place. And so there's this no man's land where they drift. And during that no man's land period, a lot of times people will will get discouraged and then leave whatever God had for them to do. Just because you're frustrated doesn't mean to go. It means a change is coming. But a lot of times you don't know what the frustration, what change the frustration is even pointing to sometimes those things develop over time. Well, that's the way it was with us. And for about six months, I spent frustrated. And I couldn't figure out what I was frustrated about. we get people saved and get people filled with the Holy Ghost, getting people healed. Couldn't figure out what I was frustrated about. The offerings weren't great or, or you know, it wasn't like we were going to get rich doing what we were doing, but God was meeting the needs and bills were being paid. And what else, what else can you look for in that, you know? I'm not in this to get rich. Wasn't in and not now. So... We couldn't figure out what was going on. As I said, it was a lot easier for me than it was for Beth. Because I get to preach. I get under the anointing. When I'm preaching the word, it doesn't matter how frustrated I am. I don't feel it then. So as many meetings as I can keep going, the better off I am. Well, the more meetings we're in, the more frustrated she gets. And so we started talking about it. And we'd we'd travel by car in those days and and, uh, travel from place to place. And a lot of long trips. A lot of long naps for her and a lot of, lot of uh, long series and uh, cassette series for me to listen to in the car on the way. But There'd be times where we'd talk about it and, you know, what do you, do you have something from the Lord? And I didn't. I just said, well, there's something about what we're doing that's not right. But I don't know what it is. And so we'd talk about it and say, well, uh, are you called to do something else? Well, I'm certainly not an evangelist. Apostle or prophet is up to God. That's not up to me. I don't know what to be other than a teacher. I'm willing to pastor, but it doesn't seem right. Just I mean, I've had, we had other churches offered to us. We had one big church in Chicago offered to us, and it just didn't seem right. Now, when I say didn't seem right, I'm going to go back to uh, an illustration that Brother Hagin used to use because it's the one that I heard and it's, it's the best fit for anything I've ever heard. He said, sometimes you get to the place where something just doesn't seem quite right. He said, it's like washing your feet with your socks on. It just doesn't feel right. Well, I, I know that's an old country expression, and I'm sure he didn't think it up, but I don't know any better way to, to describe it. There were things that were available to us that just didn't feel right. Feeling, not, not talking about physical feeling, just spiritually, inside. Something just didn't, just didn't seem to fit about that. So we turned down the church in Chicago, Going through month after month after month, more frustrated. The frustration is beginning to build. I've got, um, but now we've been ministering for about um, not quite a year and a half on the road. And it's taken me all that time to get, uh, get a schedule built up. Now I've got a schedule for the next year. A lot of better places than I've been to so far. Things were looking bright. And all of a sudden in talking casual conversation, we were back in Tulsa. Casual conversation with a fellow that I worked for back at Kenneth Hagan Ministries before I left. Something was said about a church out here. A church that we were scheduled to be into. It was the second time that we would have been there. He said something about what had happened to the church out here. Apparently, there had been some trouble in the church and things blew up. I never really got the whole story. Don't really care. But he said something about that church had gone under trouble and the pastor had left. And as soon as, and he made a joke. He said, maybe God wants you to go there and pastor. Well, as soon as he said that, that's exactly what dropped down on the inside of me. Now, let me explain my terms. When I say "drop down on the inside of me, what I, bottom line of what I mean is, I knew that I knew that I knew. I spent months, about almost six months, being frustrated, something not seeming right. And all of a sudden, I knew something was right. Now, I can't explain to you how I knew. Because he was certainly joking. He didn't mean anything by it. But all of a sudden, I knew what was right. And what was right was for me to come here and pastor. Now, here's where I put my own interpretation on it. I thought that meant take over the church. Thank God that didn't happen. And those people wound up in such a mess, Jesus himself couldn't have pastored them. (laughs) And didn't. Church blew up. Just blew into a thousand pieces. I don't know if it... If there's anybody out of the group that's still following God or or serving God or in church anywhere, I don't know it. It was a big crowd, too, at one time. But it turned into an awful mess. Folks, spiritual things guided by the flesh turn into stuff that stinks. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Thank God he didn't put me in the middle of that situation to pastor. But see, I thought, I thought my own thinking, my own reasoning, not from my heart, but my own head, would have thought, oh, boy, I could gather those people back up. We could gather them together, and, man, we could hit the ground running. I could really be somebody. I've never found, out, found that any step I took to be somebody ever worked. But all of a sudden, I knew something was right. Right? I went from wondering, I went from indecision, I went from frustration to instantly, instantly knowing this is right. Now, I didn't know everything about it. I still came out here and preached for them thinking that they were going to call me to pastor. And, man, that was the hardest service I ever preached in in my life. And looking back at it, I can see why because everybody's standing there trying to figure me out. We went to lunch afterwards, and one of the guys that was trying to head things up and trying to control the church had been all along, I guess. Sat there and started asking me questions. Well, what would you do in a situation like this? And every time that, I, every time that he would asked something, he'd say, well, what, how would the board fit in with you on that? I finally said, you know, I'm not much into boards. <laughs> well, that was the end of me. <laughs> I didn't know it at the time, but that was the end of me. Thank God. So then things went against us. They called the other pastor, called somebody else to pastor, somebody I didn't know. I've met him once don't know anything about him but I knew enough to know that it wouldn't be going the same direction that I'd take a church so now what do I do man I'm I'm back to despondent dear Lord Jesus you told me well the only thing that's changed nothing changed about what the Lord dropped in my heart what's changed is what I thought was going to happen any of you ever been in a situation where what you thought was going to happen isn't the way it went no really That's where a lot of people give up and quit. That's where a lot of people run for the hills. Oh, but the Lord said. The Lord may not have said what you thought he said. The Lord may not have said what you interpreted it to be. What did he really say? It's the word of God that's real. It's the word of God that's eternal. Not what you think about it. So now I spent several weeks. What am I going to do? Actually, the Lord kind of prepared me for it. And I'll tell you how. Because uh, for a couple of weeks before I found out they called another pastor, I woke up one morning with the question. I don't know if it was mine. I don't know if it was the Holy Ghost, whether it was my own spirit, whether it was the voice of God. I don't know what it was. But I woke up one morning with the question sitting on my chest. I can't explain it. It's almost like I could see it. What would you do if they called somebody else to pastor that church? So for the next couple of days, I started asking myself that question over and over again. Well, what would I do? Well, they'll never do that. How could they not pick me? They, they just never do that. But what if they did? Every time it was right back there. What if they did? I thought it was the devil for two days. Get thee behind me, Satan. It's not going to go that way. Finally, I addressed the question. What would I do? I, I started thinking about it and I thought, well, what did God say? I realized after some introspection, looking back down on the inside of me, I realized what the Lord told me was to go there and pastor, not go there and pastor that church. So I decided, and I even asked Beth, we were on the way on the trip somewhere else. And I said, what would you do if they called somebody else to pastor? She said, oh, God. Because, see, she had the same knowing on the inside that this was right too. So we talked about it, and I said, you know, I've had to answer the question for myself. I'd go there and start a church. Because I know that's what God told me to do. I'd have to go there and start a church. So we we talked about it some more. We agreed on it. Found out two or three days later that that's what they did. They called another guy. Well, at at the news, I wasn't despondent. A little disappointed, but I wasn't despondent because I was already prepared. I was prepared by the Holy Ghost. I was prepared by the inward witness of the Holy Ghost for what was coming. The Holy Ghost will show you things to come. Now, what he showed me was to come is not what I wanted to come. But he doesn't show you what you want to see. He shows you things to come. So when I found out, I said, well, okay, that's all right. The guy that told me about it was a guy that I knew, and he, was, he had known for some time and was kind of holding back because he didn't want, to give him, didn't want to deliver the bad news, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So I said, oh, that's fine. Don't you worry about it. We got everything handled. Didn't tell him what was going on. Didn't want to try to pull him away from something that God might have wanted for him. Maybe he's going to stay a part of that church. I don't know. It's not for me to decide. So what did we do? Well, I left this part of the story out. When we decided, when we came to the place where we knew what was right, come out here, uh, we canceled all of our meetings. So now I'm in a situation where they don't want me to pastor. I don't have any meetings. What do I do? Well, I want to move today. Today. Beth said, "Oh gosh, Mark, I can't move that quick. We've got a house, we've got furniture, we've got all this kind of stuff." I said, "We got to go to California. It's hard to get to California from Oklahoma. I don't know if you know that." <laughs> I said, "Well, we got to go." She said, "Well, well, I'm going to need I'm going to need some time." I said, "Fine. How much time you need?" She says, "Oh, I need a couple of months." I said, "I'll give you five weeks." So for five weeks. I sat in my living room. During that time, there was one meeting where another guy, a friend of mine, had scheduled. He had to cancel on, so they, they put me in his slot, one meeting. But during that time, for five months, I have nothing to do. Now, I, I shouldn't have done that. But I got excited thinking, well, I, now I know what's going to happen. Now I know what God wants me to do, so I'm going to go tomorrow. Sometimes knowing what God wants you to do does not mean go now. So I spent five weeks without anything to do. I found out Perry Mason comes on at noon every day. (laughs) You think I'm kidding. That was the highlight of my day is the noon Perry Mason. Some of you don't even know who Perry Mason is, do you? Bless your hearts. Missed half your life. So we're sitting there. And uh, I'm sitting there day after day. We don't have any money coming in, so we're trying to save money. So I'm cooking hot dogs every day, boiling hot dogs on the stove. I pulled up a TV tray, sat down to Perry Mason, and the Lord spoke to me. Perry Mason has just come on. I've got four hot dogs lathered up with ketchup and relish and all that kind of stuff, getting ready to eat them down, you know. And the Lord spoke to me. Now, this is Revelation. I didn't know the Lord watched Perry Mason. But he was right there with me. The Lord spoke to me and said, now's the time. Go now. I got up and told Beth, we're going now. I had to give her a couple of days to get ready, but we had By the end of the week, we had our trailer loaded up, everything we owned in the back of a U-Haul trailer going to a place that we didn't even know where it was. We got here, pulled off the freeway to Alicia Parkway. She said, where do we go now? I said, I have no clue. All I know is we're here. Well, long story short, we started the church, and the Lord has blessed us all along the way. Man, we've had trouble. We've had some monumental trouble. But let me tell you what I know. In every bit of trouble that we've ever had and every bit of trouble that we ever will have, I can say that I know, that I know, that I know God sent me here. He didn't send me here to fail. He didn't send me here to fold up. He didn't send me here to go under. He sent me here to pastor a church. Folks, there's nothing greater than knowing that you're in the perfect will of God. And it carries so much further than just whatever you're doing, whatever the the activity is along with what he told you to do. It gives you confidence and assurance. I understand exactly what Paul was saying when he told even his his closest friends and ministry companions. He said, what are you breaking my heart for? I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what I'm supposed to do. He could not be talked out of it no matter how much he cared for the people or how much the people cared for him. He couldn't be talked out of it because he knew that he knew that he knew. That's the inward witness that every one of us can be assured of and directed by. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the privilege to be led by the Holy Ghost. Father, what a wonderful thing to know that we're your children and know who we are in Christ. And as we submit our will to yours, Not our will, Lord, but your will be done in our lives. As we submit our will to yours and say we're willing to do whatever it is you want us to do, Lord, whether it's what we planned or not, whether it's what seems good or right to us or not, we're willing to take your direction and follow your guidance. Thank you, Father, that as we renew our minds to your word and receive that revelation, that illumination of the Holy Ghost, We thank you that we can know by experience what is your perfect will. Lord, lead these people. Lead these people that have put the word first in their lives. Who care more about your word than anything else. Lead them by your spirit so that they know that they know that they know. Your plan for them. I thank you, Lord, for leading us into victory. For guiding us, Holy Spirit, into all truth. To reality. Not pie in the sky, not what we think, not even what we want from a natural standpoint, but into reality. And as we submit our will to yours and follow that reality, we'll follow you right into the victory. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. Hallelujah. Let's lift our hands and thank God for the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Lord. What a privilege it is to be led by your Spirit. What a privilege it is to know your will, your plan, your purpose for our lives. We surrender ourselves, Lord. Surrender our will. Lead us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for doing your work, doing your job. To guide us into all truth. Show us things to come. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Have a great day.